0: This week, the Earth had its hottest day ever recorded. In the record heat in the South that's claimed at least 13 lives in Texas. In the shadow of the Colosseum, the city sweltering under a red alert, the kind of heat that threatens even the fit and healthy.
1: We know that our environment is burning. It's melting. It's flooding. It's depleting. It's drying. It's dying.
0: That was the UN Human Rights Chief Volker Turk speaking at a recent UN Council debate on the climate crisis. Describing a dystopian future of famine and extreme weather events, Turk slammed world leaders for their inaction and short-term thinking. His straight-talking approach and frankly terrifying words of warning were very different from the language usually used in these debates by climate experts. But will his words cut through? John Sweeney is Emeritus Professor at Maynooth University's
2: Geography Department. We show lots of graphs and we show lots of histograms and we portray a picture of doom and gloom, but it doesn't really click with people in the short term. And with record
0: temperatures on land and at sea in Ireland, perhaps we are not as insulated from the worst effects of climate change as we might think. Irish Times Environment and Science Editor, Kevin O'Sullivan.
1: We are going to experience ourselves more extreme weather, probably more frequent and, and more ferocious it means our cities uh, which are located at the mouth of estuaries are particularly vulnerable it includes dublin cork uh, limerick and galway
0: this is in the news from the irish times i'm bernice harrison today is a time that the message matched the urgency of the climate crisis We're here to talk about climate and I have the words of UN Human Rights Chief Volker Turk, ringing in my ears. He used very strong and, well, you know, frankly, terrifying language to describe the future if the world fails to act. He said, we face a terrifying future of hunger and suffering. Our environment, he said, is dying. Kevin, were you surprised by the strength of his comments?
1: No, I wasn't, to be honest with you. I think he was echoing the UN position very well and uh, in sympathy with with the verdict of Antonio Guterres, who's been banging this drum for for a good number of years. But I think the sense of urgency came across and the the sense of despair uh, to a large extent. And I think that was really interesting. And I also think he summarised the, the polycrisis. I, I have to use that awful word.
0: Polycrisis. Okay, <laughs> yes. That's a new one on me yes. now. So. Uh, yeah.
1: But th- the combination of um, climate change, bi- biodiversity, collapse, water pollution, extreme weather events that are really accelerating and um, the impact is clearly worsening. And he's looking into the future and saying it's going to get even more worse. So uh, it, it wasn't very um, comforting. Uh, but there was no no degree of su- surprise there. And uh, it coincided with the latest uh, heat records being established in the last week. So that added a certain pertinence to the whole situation.
0: John, uh, what did you make of it? Turk was really focused on the human rights aspect of climate change, the idea that failing to act means a travesty for the rights of those who will be affected now and in the future. I mean, is focusing on that aspect of things a good approach? Does it resonate? Does it drive action?
2: Well, I think he's echoing um, the, the sentiments of Antonio Guterres, as, as um, Kevin said, and Antonio Guterres has become rather strident in the past year or two, much Could you just tell so. me who Antonio Guterres is? Antonio Guterres is the Secretary General of the United Nations, who would be his boss, I suppose. Uh, and uh, Antonio Guterres followed on from Ban Ki-moon, who was very strong on this topic as well. I think he's hitting some some key issues here, uh, and it, perhaps he's expressing what I've often worked about, namely, that the scientific message doesn't really resonate with people as strongly as I might have hoped over the past few decades. Um, We show lots of graphs and we show lots of histograms and we portray a picture of doom and gloom, but it doesn't really click with people in the short term. What does, I think, have more of an effect is a narrative of ethics and a narrative of morality with people. And especially in this area increasingly now we're hearing that our actions or our inaction in the developed world is causing people to die and uh, that's the strongest message I think that, that you can get from an issue like this that we are in effect by our inaction killing people in the developed developing world so I think he's expressing the concern of the, uh, as Kevin was saying what, what sometimes scientists call the nexus of climate change the interaction between food security. Between biodiversity, between climate itself. And the way in which those feed into. um Aspects down the road which are very worrying, aspects of resource competition uh, for water, for food, uh, aspects which then inevitably lead to conflict and conflict and rather large migration, which I don't think we are prepared to, to encounter, encamp- well, prepared to cope with at the moment in the developed world. But these are the consequences of, I suppose, what we have failed to do in the past few decades. And I think uh, the Dystopian vision that's being presented here in terms of human rights. Um, it's a very valid one. It's a valid one which, uh, especially for Ireland, uh, which has a long tradition of concern in this area, Resonates quite well with people, perhaps more so than the the dull scientific facts and the doom and gloom uh, message that we've been using.
0: Now, he did use the word dystopia, dystopian vision. So do you think he had to use that really tough language
2: to try to cut through? I think it's a sign of maybe desperation that uh, despite everything that's gone as we head to COP28, 28 years of inactivity hasn't really achieved what I suppose m- many scientists would have hoped to achieve many years ago and I think he's using that word to reflect the I suppose the Urgency, the um, critical nature of the problem. We've seen in this week, for example, a whole host of indicators ranging from marine heat waves uh, to floods to extreme droughts to to famine uh, and to really bad heat wave conditions that maybe we haven't been prepared for before. And I think he's saying you know, this is what's coming down the line in a much greater manner in a more extreme version and really if we don't get our act together now it's going to be something which does threaten which does pose an existential threat to what we take for granted in the developed world in particular.
0: Well now the weather you, you mentioned the weather there and You know, we saw those shocking shots of flooding in Spain. You know, this is the summer. Why would there be flooding in Spain in the summer? We've seen 50 degrees in Texas, ocean heat waves here around Ireland. We saw a spike in our waters in June. And of course, you can't help but blame climate change. And you can't help but being a little bit scared by this weather. Should we be scared?
2: I think we should. Um, We have based modern society, by and large, on a continuation of the norm. You know, we build our flood defences based on historical data from a climate that's now gone. Um, And so uh, we're now in uncharted territory. And we're in uncharted territory in terms of beginning to approach the tipping points. And, And those are points from which, you know, it may not be easy to recover, even if we do get our act together in the short term. And I think uh, we do have to recognize that the climate system doesn't care about us humans, (laughs) neither does planet Earth. But nevertheless it will change, it will adapt um, perhaps ruthlessly um, to a new set of of driving forces. And we've seen as we get close to that 1.5 degree global warming threshold now, the risk of losing things that we take for granted. The risk of losing, obviously the coral reefs will be gone at two degrees of warming. The risk of um, Greenland uh, going through uncontrolled melt-out, which may well have started already. Uh, as, as may also be the case in West Antarctica. And that means that effectively we should be scared for the future for those that come after us. Um, it's a question of legacy, it's a question of equity. How much should we um, support our current lifestyles at the expense of reducing the opportunities and the sustainability of those that come after us? So I think there is, again, going back to that concept of, of morals and ethics, There is a feeling of protecting the next generation, which is maybe getting through to the public more effectively now than it has in the past.
0: Kevin, um, Volker Turk, he, he mentioned that the specifically that the temperature in Basra hit 50 degrees centigrade last August. And that was an example of sort of the dystopian future we're we're going to arrive at. What impact does that kind of heat have?
1: well if it's sustained it causes devastation very quickly and um, in in climate vulnerable countries it means inevitably drought um, and it's coming in most cases on top of drought over a sustained period of time so there's obvious implications there um for the people that are are, are trying to eke out a living but also in terms of food production in terms of agriculture in terms of keeping livestock and then uh, when that drought scenario is persists, uh, it's inevitable that there's an increase in climate migration, which is probably going to be the, the great social problem of the mid-21st century. But uh, it, it affects different um, continents in, in different ways. Obviously, a drought in, in Spain would primarily affect its agriculture production, it being one of the big uh, vegetable and fruit producers of Europe. Uh, But equally there, temperatures of over 40 degrees in the springtime, it was a warning that they are facing that possible future as well. Likewise, countries around the Mediterranean. In recent years, North America has had particularly devastating uh, heat waves, um, even as far north as Canada, uh, where temperatures above 45, 46 degrees have occurred. And uh, this year, the particular problem there has been wildfires and, and air pollution. Um, so it, it depends on what part of the world you're in. In Texas at the moment, it, it's particularly awful. Um, and uh, it, it just shifts in the sense that um, there's an unpredictability about it. As, as John was saying, we are now moving close closer to the climate tipping points where it's going to be very hard to anticipate what might occur.
2: And it, just to add to that, in terms of, Kevin said, if sustained, and that's a very important um, caveat, I suppose. I've looked at the model outputs for the Arabian Peninsula uh, for mid-century and beyond. And the mm-hmm. average mean max temperature for many of the areas in the Arabian Peninsula is above 50 degrees. Oh. That's the average daily temperature. Now people maximum. can't live, live in that, so, can yeah, they? So yes, I, th- I think it rules out outdoor living by and large. It rules out agriculture, obviously. It means that you get either the very rich producing air conditioning systems, maybe using oil or gas to produce them, or you get people moving out mm. or you get migration occurring on a grand scale.
0: Yeah, Kevin mentioned climate migration. What, what, what does that mean? What, what's that, what would that look like?
2: Well, it it depends where you're looking at it from. There are a couple of uh, key areas of concern here. The first is obviously the the sub-Sahelian zone of Africa where people live on the margins and where any if you like, hiccup in climate f- forces people out and it causes, as we know, conflict and strife. The second key area, of course, is the, the low-lying coral atolls and low-lying islands of the Pacific. And here, uh, effectively, you're you're saying your culture is gone, your homeland is gone, you have to move out. That brings back us back to the ethical question as well. Have we the right to eliminate a culture, eliminate a, a homeland for other people? And the third key area, and I think probably 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 which will be the most critical one is in the large mega deltas of the world. Um, Places like the Nile Delta, places like the delta of the uh, Ganges and Brahmaputra. About a quarter of Bangladesh is less than two metres above sea level. The population of Bangladesh is 169 million. A lot of them live in that low-lying area. So when their, um, when their homeland goes, uh, as it will with a couple of metres rise in sea level, and, and It may occur quicker than we think because many of those uh, delta areas are already subsiding because of the weight of sediment that the rivers bring down. So you have a telescoping of impacts into a shorter period than many other parts of the world. But those kinds of mass movements of population well, they will make the Mediterranean issue today look very small, beer in de- indeed. And that's what I think will be of great concern later in this century um, if present trends continue. It will make places attractive to people to move um, even more so than today. And we may well have the kind of lifeboat economies um, in places like New Zealand, um, the UK, and Ireland, where perhaps, uh, you know, these migrants will be looking to flock to to survive. So I think, you know, that there is a big issue there in terms of what what we might encounter down the road. Um, and let's face it, these are people who have not caused the problem. These are people who are the victims of us having caused the problem. Uh, and that's, that's something that we have to bear in mind.
0: And you mean by us, you mean the way we live, our lifestyles?
2: Yeah, the, the way we live, um, we have... I suppose uh, gained prosperity on the basis of this wonderful fossil fuel that we can compact so much energy into a small liquid or a small gas, uh, and you know that's that's what has been the thing that's propelled us to prop- prosperity, uh, that and coal. But in the developing world, they are rightly pointing the finger at us and saying, why can you deprive us? deprive us of the same, um, I suppose, ambition and opportunity. Uh, and we are therefore, I think, obliged to provide some answers to them in the form of, well, we do want you to develop, but we want you to not make the mistakes that we've made in the developed world. So we need to transfer resources on a a huge scale to enable those developing countries to enjoy a rightful uh, and earned standard of living, but not one which threatens the viability of the whole planet at the same time. And that's why climate finance has become such a big issue in the COPS meeting Um, It's now developing into um, uh, almost the the monopoly topic in the COPs. Loss and damage uh, has now become officially on the agenda as of last year. Um, But the failure of the developed world to meet its commitments, uh, it made a commitment in 2010 to provide $100 billion a year uh, to the developing countries. Uh, 13 years later, it has not even reached that. Um, And that's, that's an issue which rankles with many developing countries. And we see them drawing back on their pledges Um, under the Paris Agreement, saying, yes, we will reduce our emissions, but only if we have the economic wherewithal to do it from the developed world. So you get this uh, tension between the developing and developed countries, which I think will become even more acute in years ahead.
1: Often these are countries that benefited little from industrial development and contributed next to nothing to the industrial processes which are killing our environment and violating rights. If this is not a human rights issue, what is?
0: Coming up, what are the main risks climate change poses for Ireland? leaders perform
1: the choreography of deciding to act and promising to act and then get stuck in the short term.
0: Some people in Ireland think, you know, a few degrees, that'll be good for us. You know, we're isolated. The world's, you know, problems can't really harm us. I I suspect, you know, that neither of you agree with that. But to be specific, if we were to allow ourselves to forget about the outside world, What are the main risks of climate change to us here in Ireland right now?
1: Well, I think it's very obvious that we are going to experience ourselves more extreme weather, probably more frequent and and more ferocious. So that means coastal areas are much more vulnerable. It means our cities, uh, which are located at the mouth of estuaries, are particularly vulnerable. It includes Dublin, Cork, uh, Limerick and Galway in particular. Um, It means... Food production will, will come under more pressure. Uh, we will have wetter winters, often leading to more sustained flooding over much of the country. Uh, we'll have drier summers, which will probably affect the eastern half of the country a lot wor- a lot worse. Again, it will affect tillage production in particular. So there's, there's very real risks that are immediately there on the horizon that are going to affect the way people live. Um, and it is not fair to say that it's someone else's problem. I think the biodiversity situation in Ireland is particularly dire. Um, We have an intensive form of agriculture, which is promoting monoculture. Uh, I think uh, we have a water pollution problem that's related to that that's not properly addressed. So we have enough problems on our plate already that we need to get around to dealing with very quickly.
0: And are we dealing with them?
1: Uh, I think you can't... uh, lie about the emissions uh, because our emissions are still increasing for all sorts of reasons and John might explain further on that. But uh, we should be in a scenario where our emissions are coming down and we have a series of carbon budgets coming over the next 15 years that are designed to do that. But unfortunately, it looks like we're going to exceed our carbon budget for the first five year period um, we should be in a situation where our agricultural emissions are coming down on a sustained pathway where we're scaling up public transport and becoming less car dependent. But we have a long way to go, I'm afraid.
0: So John, what about you? What what are the main risks of climate change to us right here in Ireland?
2: The first risk, I think, is that we will spend a lot of money adapting and protecting ourselves against it. Um, I mean, we uh, to build a seawall, a mile of seawall or a kilometre of seawall is almost the same cost as a kilometre or a mile of um, motorway. Goodness. So, you know, that that's the kind of protection that we, we may end up having to do in many parts of our towns and cities, especially. We can never protect rural parts of Ireland, golf courses, Agricultural land in any way on a cost-benefit basis, it will. It will, however, ex- put a very heavy tax burden on the next generation uh, as they seek to protect cities and and uh, urban areas. So, so there will be a cost. There will be a cost also in terms of coping with the extremes of drought. Um, we've only re- really really recognised in the past five years that drought is an inherent part of the Irish climate. Uh, we we kind of assumed it would be something that would never bother us here no, in Ireland. it rains all the time. We think so but in fact if you look back through history there's a long history of uh, of places um, uh, in Ireland suffering drought. I mean I think on Killiney Beach uh, in the 19th century there was an explosive set off to try and cause rain um, so you know there's all kinds of problems in, in history. We will have those economic problems, we will have the loss of biodiversity that Kevin discussed as well and of course once you lose biodiversity, what you lose is, I suppose, um, flexibility to cope with stress. Biodiversity gives plants and animals options Um, a a, a more skeletal structure means that uh, they become much more prone to suffering from stress so that will be the first thing I think also um, we will certainly have to change our agricultural systems we will have to start looking in particular at water resources um, and very large infrastructural projects will be required to keep the towns and cities of Ireland supplied with domestic water we're seeing the cost of the Shannon scheme at the moment. Um, it, it, it may be one of uh, a number of things we have to do down the road. But these are hugely expensive. And uh, I think we, we have to face up to the fact that our inactivity will cost us and cost us dearly uh, in the years ahead. Now, we won't have, I suspect, the, the high 40s in terms of temperatures or even the 40 degree value for a number of decades yet because our oceanic location will protect us a bit from that. But we will have mortality and uh, we, we know that during um, warm periods in Ireland the mortality graph ticks upwards. Um, uh, what really surprised me from work I did many years ago now was that Irish people show increased mortality at relatively low temperatures. So whereas if you go to Spain or France uh, a temperature of 30 or 32 degrees won't necessarily cause mortality increases on a substantial scale, once you get about above about 18 degrees on a mean daily average in Ireland you notice increases among the elderly, among people who are predisposed to, to stress from cardiovascular or pulmonary uh, problems and we will have to face the health consequences of that we will have to face the health consequences of waterborne disease from rivers that run very low in the summertime uh, and we will have to face the consequences of uh, immigration of pests and diseases from the continent that we didn't think we had. Uh, we're seeing some of those already arriving in Ireland in our trees, in our forests. We will have others which will perhaps be more damaging to people and to animals than than we perhaps anticipate at the moment. But in general you know, we are going to face um, economic problems and, and need to change society a bit and how it's organised and how the priorities of society are, are changed as well because unless we do adapt in that situation, we will render Ireland Inc. uncompetitive in the global system as well. So if we want to remain a, a, a prosperous country, if we want to remain a country that can compete internationally, We don't want to be spending all this money simply protecting ourselves against the things that might happen if we can avoid it. So we we do need to play our part. And of course, the other aspect, I suppose, is that if we have the big bad event here, if we have the big bad flood, and we are, as Kevin is saying, doing nothing to control our own emissions... We won't get much sympathy from the EU or from other bodies in terms of coping down the road from from financial help. So it's in our own self-interest to actually act early and act in a radical manner. So
0: when you hear all the talk about this big pot of money that Pascal Donoghue has and Michael McGrath has to spend now in the next budget... Are you disappointed or do you feel it's a sign that the climate emergency message is not getting through, that there isn't much talk about hiving off huge loads of those millions into into no, some of the measures you talk it's about? It's really
2: disappointing that, you know, 12 billion is being touted and I've hardly heard a single politician saying, let's spend it on retrofitting, let's spend it on flood proofing, let's spend it on climate change proofing our, our houses. It's, it's quite strange and that reflects, I think, I think... The feeling that many people have that short-termism is the thing that rules the roost. The the five-year electoral cycle is the thing that rules the roost. It's not necessarily looking in the medium and long term. We had a a really big struggle to get the government to produce a long-term strategy uh, for uh, its climate policy. Uh, Brussels was haranguing it for a number of years to get it. And I think, you know, the, 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 the trouble is that we... Especially in a multi seat constituency type of setup, it's very easy for politicians to react to the lowest common denominator. Uh, and we're seeing that I think at the moment with agriculture um, as well. Uh, rather than looking beyond the short term horizon and asking the hard questions of well, there may be a necessity to take to take some pain now for some gain later.
1: I think you can uh, you you can justify it as well on inflation grounds. I I don't think you know, major investment in climate measures that will last for a generation will feed inflation. Um, I'm not an economist, but I think you could justify it on that. It, interestingly, I think Pat, Pascal Donohu understands that, but I think, as John said, it's getting that collective agreement on it is incredibly difficult. And the nature restoration law debate has shown that. It really has... Uh, derailed uh, the progress on biodiversity and, and actions that we really need to start immediately. Um, and there's a risk that that would happen with, with climate change. And if I could also add, I think in this day and age, you you cannot talk about growth, uh, economic growth in the limited sense without referring to the climate impact and climate risk. and It's quite remarkable the extent to which you have this conversation about gro- economic growth and, and climate is not even mentioned.
0: So, Kevin Volker, Turkey called out world leaders for getting, and he says, stuck in the short term. What does he mean by that? And and who was he referring to specifically? Do you think?
1: Well, I think he was referring to most countries in the developed world. Uh, we're not acting quick enough. We don't have an emergency mindset we don't realize that uh, the narrow that the the window for opportunity in in applying the solutions that are there is narrowing really rapidly and uh we're in a scenario now where 1.5 degrees is going to be exceeded probably in the next year or two if it hasn't already on a daily basis i think there's a big debate about whether last friday we actually exceeded it based on pre-industrial levels so th- primarily that includes us uh, but it includes all the big players. And I think you have to narrow the argument in the sense that you look at the major uh, powers in the world and they, th- you have to point the finger at them. In other words, US and China, historically the biggest emitters, uh, still the biggest emitters of, of carbon in the world. But then there's a whole tranche of countries that are stalling progress uh, on on climate and they are uh, petro-states largely confined to, to the... Um, to the Middle East but also uh, Russia and India and India is a particularly difficult problem because it's going to become more populous than China very shortly and um, it's not clear John might have a different view on this, what way they're going to go in terms of uh, fossil fuels. OK, they're adopting solar energy with great interest and, and uh, effect, but overall, they're still using coal. It's worrying the the lack of coherence on, on their climate approach. So they're, they're the main issues. And it's amazing in, in COPS, uh, in other words, the annual climate conference that we've had in recent years that John and I go to, um, The same people are putting their hand up and saying no, we're not agreeing to this. The same people are stalling progress, and uh, unfortunately, we're at a scenario now where progress at these COPs is really poor, and uh, you know there's endless talks and watering down. And the one good thing, and we can come to this in a minute, is there was agreement on loss and damage last year to help countries that are going to be affected uh, from from the climate crisis.
0: Now the goal broadly. Uh, is to have emissions by 2030. And that's to give ourselves a chance of keeping the rise in temperatures globally at around one and a half degrees. Um, and this is for each of you. When it comes to the countries that are really tackling emissions, who is leading the way? And Kevin, you you, you intimated who may be holding us back. Uh, but where does Ireland fit into that? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, traditionally, Ireland uh, sheltered behind uh, the intransigence of the UK in many of these international negotiations. That isn't happening at the moment. And I think, to be fair, Ireland has played a, a more constructive role in recent COPs, especially in terms of adaptation finance. But it's. When you say adaptation, be- adaptation finance now, what's that? Well, providing aid to the developing countries to help them cope with what's coming down the road, basically. Um, now. Having said that, um, a rich country can, you know, solve its conscience a bit like that by doing that kind of thing. But when you go back to the home and back to the domestic base and find that the aspirations and the good me- messages being sent internationally are not reflected by action occurring at a national level, it's quite disconcerting. And uh, I think one of the things that I, I find particularly perplexing is misinformation. And there are still still quite a lot of misinformation being promulgated. Um, it's being used to infuse uh, people who are worried about their own um, employment activities, such as farmers. It's often totally wrong, but it's a, it's a message that's um, increasingly being taken up by extreme political uh, spectra. And that's, that's quite worrying as well. But I think, you know, down the line, the EU is, has played a leading role traditionally. Um, it kept, if you like, the candle of climate change lit when the US under Trump uh, sort of bailed out for several years there. Uh, and to be fair, they have they have achieved their targets for 2020. They've overachieved. They had a target of 20% reduction in, um, in emissions for 2020 as opposed to 1990. They achieved 31%. So it demonstrates that it can be done, and it can be done by by countries which are, uh, I suppose, willing to grasp the nettle. Uh, Denmark, for example, has a target of 70% reduction by 2030. I remember hearing the Danish Prime Minister saying, we don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. And that's really the kind of leadership that I think we need. Um, we are sort of quibbling about whether we're going to get our 2025 carbon budget uh, achieved or not. It now looks almost certain we won't. And so we're airbrushing and kicking the can down to 2030. Um, and that's, that's quite disappointing because, of course, there's also the strategic element of a government passing the buck to the next government to pick up the pieces, uh, the next government becoming unpopular for that reason and the first first lot coming back in again. So mm-hmm. there is there, you don't know what's at play politically but the end product is that the, the, the issue doesn't get the urgency it needs in the short term and uh, that, that's what's most disappointing. The Nordic countries of course have been traditional leaders but we also have some really good developing countries who are willing to stand up up and be counted. Kevin, when John talks about
0: misinformation there, do you think there's an element of that driving our agricultural sector's response to this?
1: I think that's a factor. Uh, I think the other factor is polarisation. I think we're, the debate has got so polarised, it's it's really... Impairing, you know, meaningful engagement, and uh, it's now stalling actions that would bring you a result. Um, and I think farmers are too much on the defensive uh, as a consequence, and yet they know the environment like better than most, and they have the ability to really bring a well. Quick they're impact. custodians Absolutely. of the environment and for generations. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a really difficult impasse, and I think it's going to come to a head when a national land use plan is is agreed. And I I would agree with uh, Eamon Ryan's approach in the sense that I think they have to get all the players into the room and firstly establish what they agree on and then go from there...
0: Now the Dubai COP28 uh, climate summit that's in November and December. Um, you both have been to to previous COPs, um, and Volker Turk he said that that the outcome of that needed to be it needs to be a decisive game cha- changer. Now, uh, you know, from both your experience going to COPs, there's always resolutions at the end. Is that likely?
1: Well, I I think it's highly unlikely, and I think it's really despairing that that is the case. Um, I think there's increased recognition that the COP process doesn't work anymore. It's not fit for purpose. It's too cumbersome. It's almost 200 countries represented in a room uh, and you have to get uh, at least a majority decision uh, and probably more uh, to get any meaningful action. And uh, that's that's the really worrying thing. On top of that, Dubai is uh, obviously in a petrol state, um, so that s- sours the mood music immediately, despite what's been said by by the presidency of the of the COP. Um, so I wouldn't be very optimistic at all. Um, but I, I think. It, it, the COPs are important and last year against the odds loss and damage was uh, was secured with the great help of Ireland at critical stage in negotiations. So there are some unlikely wins that you might get. I, I've come around to the view that COPs need to be divided up really and under certain themes and almost meet separately in a way of, of trying to action more uh, and I but I don't see much consensus on that like it's the only mechanism we have so we kind of have to live with it. Um, but I think the temperature records this year will certainly concentrate minds because there's a pattern there that is signaling that catastrophe could be around the corner.
0: okay well look thanks very much uh, John and Kevin thanks for, for coming in to talk to us. That's it for today. For more on the climate emergency from Kevin O'Sullivan, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by John Casey. In the news, we'll be back soon.